0: You're listening to Life of the Record, classic albums told by the people who made them. My name is Dan Nordheim. Japandroids formed in 2006 in Vancouver, British Columbia, by Brian King and David Prowse. After self-releasing two EPs, they turned their attention to their debut full-length album. Post Nothing was released in 2009 by Unfamiliar Records and was an unexpected success. They signed a polyvinyl and began recording their second album in between tours. Celebration Rock was eventually released in 2012. In this episode, for the 10th anniversary David Prouse, engineer Jesse Gander, and writer Stephen Hayden look back on how the album came together. This is The Making of Celebration Rock.
1: My name's Stephen Hayden. I'm an author and music critic, and I'm here to talk about Celebration Rock. For me, the significance of the title Celebration Rock was celebrating what rock and roll can be. And that just felt like such a refreshing message in 2012. Because it really was a time like where it was almost like people cheering for rock and roll to be dead. You know, that was my feeling. Because you always read these think pieces about, you know... Rock music is irrelevant, rock is dead, you know, no one cares about it, the kids don't like it anymore. Yada yada yada. And it, it just seemed like so many people were predicting the end of rock and, and almost like wanting to will it into existence. So to see a band just come out and say, We're celebrating this music we're celebrating rock and roll we're celebrating its history its lineage we're making a record that is drawn from this continuum and we want to add to it and we're doing this in you know the most straightforward earnest way possible i just found that to be like so inspiring you know it was almost like they could only get away with that because they were so outside the indie rock world to me the magic of the album is the sort of ordinariness of this band and how they were able to make this transcendent record because they just believed in rock music that much. You know, like it really is sort of like a, it's like this heartwarming sort of miracle type story.
2: is Dave from Japanroids and we are talking about the 2012 album Celebration Rock. So Japanroids uh were and to some extent still are based in Vancouver, BC, Canada, which is a bit of a hinterland uh culturally even within Canada, let alone worldwide. So um we're not completely off the map, but we're not one of the the big cities that everybody's looking to for, you know, what's what in terms of art music culture. So You know, we did our thing in Vancouver. We were getting a little bit of buzz locally, but there was a feeling that things were pretty stagnant. You know, it was pretty common amongst our peer group for people to make a couple records, maybe get a little buzz locally, but not really go anywhere. And then maybe you move to Montreal or you move to Toronto, or maybe you just start a new band in Vancouver. So we were sort of hitting that moment after we made Post Nothing. Brian and I were both quite ambitious and I had no problem just harassing anybody I knew who put out records. And I i literally couldn't get anyone in Vancouver to put out our stuff. It was pretty demoralizing. And we, were, we knew we had a, a cool album that we were really proud of. I think Post Nothing we tracked in like three days. And then I think maybe we had one more day for vocals. Jesse Gander, a uh, wonderful local recording engineer. He recorded it, he mixed it.
3: Uh, my name is Jesse Gander and I'm a, I'm a recording engineer and producer in Vancouver, British Columbia. And yeah, I recorded um, I recorded most of the Japandroids records out there, um, including Celebration Rock. I first met Japandroids um, when they were a brand new band. You know, they put on the show, just a DIY uh, punk rock show kind of thing. And uh, I remember they played first, and I thought they totally rocked. And I, I clearly remember it going through my head like, man, this is totally like the kind of punk rock that like I love. But this is never going to be popular with the kids, (laughs) you know, like thinking like, like in 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 those days, everybody wanted to be like uh, Joy Division. You know, it it was all about how dark can you make it? How uh, how British can you be? That's what was really popular uh, in in Canada at that time. So I remember thinking, no one's going to go for this, you know huskadoo barn burning punk rock like i don't think anybody's ever going to dig this you know it's just kind of a a passing thought and uh um but i really really liked it it was it was something that i immediately connected with and and super loved the band right away yeah so then when they so then when they called me to start recording them which was i guess for post nothing you know it was a quick record it was done in um two days i mean i don't think they were thinking like hey let's drop umpteen thousand dollars to make a big record that's going to be you know potentially change our the course of our lives forever i don't think that's what they were thinking they were like
2: they were a band that jammed a couple nights a week and played a few shows we had a very kind of interesting series of events leading to um us playing a show to basically no one at a festival in montreal called pop montreal later we found out that a contributor to pitchfork was at that show among the like 12 people there. And we got a MySpace message. So this is really setting the place and time. We got a MySpace message in 2009 from Mark Richardson at Pitchfork. And you could literally see as soon as he he basically asked, can we put Young Heart Spark Fire on our website? And we said, yeah, of course you can. Please do. Um, And then as soon as that happened, you know, just the amount of listeners on our MySpace page and followers and whatnot, like just exponentially grew. And also, like, I think in 2022, it's hard for people to understand the sort of cachet and power that Pitchfork had in 2009. You know, they were definitely the kind of tastemaking website, you know, that existed in music and really could kind of like crown people. So that really kind of kicked things off in terms of just getting any recognition whatsoever.
3: Japandroids really weren't, I mean, to, my, to my perspective of it, weren't even really a popular local band yet um, in Vancouver. Like, they were like I don't even think they were really quite at the size where they were headlining clubs in Vancouver yet. It was it was it would have been a shock to us all that that people gravitated so much towards the record and uh, and the press was so uh like favorable to it. I think it was refreshing to people and I think it it was cool and it it came up at a time that maybe people were ready for that.
1: They had that sort of loser allure that the replacements had, you know, that these guys are not meant to famous really they're not meant to be praised on pitchfork you know it's sort of like the last band that you would expect uh, to be getting good reviews from music critics uh and yet because they just have so much like joy and celebration in the music it just like won people over and there there's something like really appealing about that you know and it's hard to imagine that kind of record taking over the imagination of like the indie rock press today you know like a band like that That, you know, isn't well connected, that isn't making what is considered, you know, sort of trendy music or, you know, forward thinking music, you know, really just sort of like an old school rock band made up of like two misfits, you know, that somehow kind of takes over the world or at least its corner
2: of the world. We had a very weird history to our band where we kind of constantly felt like the band was sort of on borrowed time because we'd already given up on the band and then all this stuff happened. And then we just kind of rolled with it. And ended up touring on post nothing for about a year and a half
3: they were just such a hard working touring band like they were just literally on tour all the time and you know when you're a band like that you're like you really have to strike while the iron's hot like when the tours are being offered to you and and the press is being favorable to you and and you have the energy and the will to tour lots and do
2: that you must it was a very weird feeling going into making celebration rock because uh, you know We'd sort of given up on the band, then all the success had happened, and then you know we'd sort of just run ourselves into the ground just saying yes to every opportunity we've been given as far as where to play and what to do. And then all of a sudden it was time to make a new record. I think when people listen to Celebration Rock, they think we were having a lot of fun in the studio, and that is not really the case. Uh, there was occasionally moments where it was a good time, but I, I I think actually you know strangely enough, it's a record that came out of a lot of anxiety and a lot of pressure. You know, self inflicted pressure. They were basically
3: like, you know, coming home for two weeks in between two month long tours and try to write two songs or one song or something like that. Just try to have something and a cover usually just for fun. And they were actually banging off what we kind of almost thought um, were going to be seven inches. So some of the songs in Celebration Rock, they were almost kind of one-offs in a way. But as time went on and and the touring just didn't stop and they needed a new album, a few years had passed now, like of them just touring nonstop. And they were really like, hey, like, probably also the record labels were like, yo, you guys need a proper full length. We can't just go on seven (laughs) inches forever. We we need an LP.
2: It was pretty like serious business making the record. And and there was definitely a lot of moments where it felt like the record wasn't going to get finished or there was definitely some moments where we felt pretty lost and unsure of what to do next. So there was a pretty strong desire for both of us to prove that we weren't just some one hit wonder. So we definitely put a lot of pressure on ourselves and um, really pushed ourselves uh, to try and make a record that we were really proud of, and felt like a you know like a clear evolution from what we'd done previously.
3: I think Celebration Rock is a is a pretty massive step forward, uh, and the the songs as well. Like the songs are you know lyrically are way more developed, and yeah, no, I, I think it is a, a massive step up. And and even though we did those like Celebration Rock was also done in two days, it was done in two songs in two day chunks, not uh, you know ten songs in a two days.
2: It was very very different from Post Nothing. Post Nothing was pretty much like you know, let's grab a case of beer and a case of Red Bull and go into the studio and just like let it rip. And there was a bit of that for Celebration Rock, but um, also a lot of moments where we would start doing things and then take a minute and be like, is this what we want to do? And then, you know, scrap a song or add a new song or etc, etc, etc. So it's definitely a lot more labor intensive than Post Nothing certainly was. And I think the biggest thing you notice is just that Brian um, is trying to say a lot more. Um, You know, there were little hints of that, I think, on Post Nothing, but there were also a bunch of songs that had like two lines for the entire song. So when
1: Celebration Rock dropped, it was a real surprise because not only was it a great record, but it came from this band that didn't seem to have the makings to produce an album like that. You know, it really was an example of them not coming out of nowhere but you know really transforming themselves i think into something that felt really special i think that was the double shock of that album you know just the fact that it was so good and that japan droids made it
2: So the Knights of One and Roses uh, is one of the songs that took probably the longest to go from start to finish. For a long, long time, it was an instrumental that we really liked, and we had a nickname for it. We called it Springsteen. We called it the Springsteen song for a long time. I think, I think probably just because it was like a bit slower than some of our other stuff, but felt very, very anthemic and kind of had like a almost like a Born in the USA vibe or something like that to us. But as much as we love the instrumental, we just couldn't really figure out how to turn it into like a song song. I actually was sort of in charge of writing the lyrics to that one for a long time. And I just never really could come up with anything that felt quite right. And so when Brian took a crack at it, he basically had those lyrics down. And then the thing that really clinched that song to me is that sort of wordless bridge section You know, because it's yell like hell to the heavens, and then, oh, you know, that part comes in. And I feel like once that part of the song entered into it, it just took on a whole other life. And uh, that's a really, really fun song to play live. And uh, yeah, it was just definitely one of those eureka moments where as soon as Brian had that idea, that song just was like, oh, this is going to be a good one for sure. This is is a banger to start the record with.
1: Nights of Wine and Roses is just such a quintessential opening track, and... I think it speaks to the rock scholarship of this band that, you know, if you're going to make a record like this, you need a Thunder Road, you need a Black Dog, you know, you need a sort of uh, lapels-grabbing opening track that's really going to set the tone. And, you know, I love the, like the fireworks at the beginning of the song, you know, which I, I feel like that's such a transportive moment putting the listener in a headspace where you're going back to a younger, more innocent time in your life.
3: They've just been touring the States, I think. And I don't know if you know, but in Canada, firecrackers are, are illegal. You, you cannot buy them here. You're not allowed to buy fucking gunpowder like it's not like a thing you can just go and buy and in Canada you'd have to buy those um on the black market usually and people like literally in high school like 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 delinquents would go across the border to uh to Bellingham or or you know or Blaine or one of the close American border towns to to Vancouver and buy the firecrackers and smuggle them back and sell them to the kids and we'd like you know blow shit up or or empty out all the gunpowder into um and put it all into one you know capsule so it like makes a bigger bang Anyways, um, uh, so the guys have brought back a bunch of firecrackers. I, I'm not sure why. So,
2: yeah, the fireworks. The fireworks are real. They're, it's. I mean, it's firecrackers. Brian and I are both uh, big fans of firecrackers. And uh, we've, we'd actually tried to record firecrackers in an earlier recording session for an EP, like way back in the day. Um, we often, especially back in those days, would have a pretty good cache of firecrackers on us whenever we go on tour. And uh, America obviously is a land that loves their firecrackers uh, much more than Canada. So we would always hit up these like giant firecracker warehouses in uh, in like especially in the Midwest. I feel like they have tons of those. So we just always had a cache of firecrackers. So we had had that idea in the past, we wanted to do it again. So we did it just in the back parking lot, basically where you load into the studio. It's all concrete. So there's a lot of like interesting reflections and so Jesse just brought out uh, a boom mic. We blew up
3: uh, a whole pack of of mighty mites, um, you know, or boomers, or one of those, you know, multiple packs of, of firecrackers that you light. You light one, and you know, a hundred blow up. And uh, we put mics outside, and we mic that up, and it didn't really sound like much. So then I had the idea: let's just slow them right down. Like in Pro Tools, you can just slow down a sound, and, and the pitch will also slow down. And when we slowed it right down and expanded the width of that track by, you know a thousand percent or something like that all of a sudden it just sounded like fireworks
2: blowing off and we're like oh my god it's so cool the real sound would have been more like but instead it's like that boom 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 you know it's just and that's just from the tape effect it sounded pretty rad uh it's it definitely came out better than i think any one of us thought it was gonna sound uh so big credit to jesse for making that sound as good as it did It was sort of just a a goofy idea that we had, and then as soon as we heard it, we were like, oh, this is gonna be great. We should definitely have the album start and finish with these.
1: Japan Droids did it's so simple and so direct that it's actually really hard to do. Like the musicianship of it isn't complicated. The, you know, the songwriting, you know, is pretty straightforward. So anyone can technically do it. You know, you can you can technically pull off these songs, any band could do that. But in terms of getting them over, performing them, selling them, it really does require, I think, you know, a high level of commitment. And like a total lack of guile. You know, like if you are singing a song like Nights of Wine and Roses, which is, you know, a song, it's like a drinking song, basically. It's a song, you know, let's stay up all night and let's party. And if you do a song like that, and there's even a tinge of irony, or there's a tinge of self-consciousness, or embarrassment, or, you know, sort of like a cool guy posture with that, I think it just falls apart. You know, it points out the ridiculousness of a song like that but if it's someone who is expressing something honest and true and emotional it stops being ridiculous and it, it it becomes something that's almost like a memory and really like for people who don't like this record i think that's the thing that holds them back from it because you kind of have to be as guileless as japan droids are to get into this album if you approach any of this stuff cynically the album falls apart i think and that's something that not every listener is going to be able to do you know to go all in in the same way that the band is
2: I think Fires Highway was actually the first song that we wrote for Celebration Rock that was finished. I mean, Younger Us obviously had come out um, before, well before that, but that song was, you know, initially was going to be a, a single. And Fires Highway was written for the record and was done pretty early in the writing process and was something that we were really, really happy with. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great example of one of the things I like most about Brian's guitar playing, which is that, you know being able to basically play chords underneath like a lead guitar line, you know? And I just love that way that Brian can play. And I think as soon as I heard that riff, I was I was pretty locked in. And and uh, that song felt like it came together pretty quickly and was was a song we were really, really, really happy with. It was definitely one of those moments where once we had that song under our belts, I feel like we knew we were onto something and, and it helped spur on the rest of the writing for this record.
4: We'll always I'm pretty
3: sure that that Fires Highway and and I think Evil Sway, to me those ones are kind of some of the most barn burning kind of songs on the record. Like Fires Highway is a ripper of a song. I'm pretty sure that those were recorded in the summer. Um, Like I think that they had a very narrow window on tour and it was like, again, this album was mixed in the winter. And I think those songs, like they're kind of fast, like ripper songs, because... I think they were just in that state of mind. They were they were just touring full blast. And I think I think Fire's Highway is probably kind of a reflection of that. Yeah. To me, that was always like this is a, a song inspired by by being on a being on tour endlessly and uh and I think the the narrative of the song probably captures a bit of that.
2: Post nothing, you know, a lot of the lyrical themes are pretty autobiographical where it's, you know, about that feeling of being stuck and wanting to leave somewhere. And, you know, celebration rock I you know, across the record, there's definitely a lot of stories about getting out and sort of all the different things you get up to once you're able to sort of escape your hometown and and travel all over the world. And so Fires Highway is a pretty great example of that. You know, it's definitely a road, road trip song and, yeah, captures that kind of spirit of just like wild nights on the road.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, like Fires Highway is really plugging into that idea of like the open road and going out into the world which is like such a great like rock and roll uh subject you know because rock and roll is about transformation you know like changing your life for the better uh and breaking free of you know whatever was holding you back you know
2: i think it's in some ways like one of the most emblematic songs for like the spirit of of the record as a whole and, and and even for the band as a whole you know i think a lot of people think of those those kind of concepts when they think of the band they think of seizing the day and making the most of the time you have.
1: I mean, just the title, Fires Highway, I mean, it again, it evokes things like Thunder Road, you know, like that sort of like 50s, you know, youth exploitation type title, you know, like you could you could imagine like James Dean being in a movie called Fires Highway, you know, where he's playing like a bad boy, drag racer, you know, something like that. So, you know, I think with Japan Droids, their lyrics are definitely their heightened melodrama, you know, like they're definitely writing in the same way that Springsteed did on Born to Run, where there are elements of autobiography, but it's heightened, you know, and it's cut through the language and the, and the iconography of like old time rock music. And it's, you know, acknowledging the cliches of that, but also celebrating it and realizing that you can utilize those cliches in the service of you know, expressing something that's emotionally authentic.
2: So Evil Sway is a weird one. We actually, um, for a long, 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 long time, I think just because we recorded that song first and when we recorded it, we were thinking it was going to be a single. We were constantly thinking that was going to be the first single on the record. To the point where like, even when we sent in that finished album and Polyvinyl first heard it and you know, our publicist first heard it and like, you know, our manager and all these people, you know, we were like, oh, here's the record, Evil Sway is gonna be the first single. And, you know, we just had it so fixed in our minds. So eventually, you know, a bunch of people were like, hey guys, there's this song called House That Heaven Built that I think you should probably make the the single. And uh, obviously we listened to them and it seems crazy now to think that we didn't think that House That Heaven Built was the single, but just in our minds, we were just totally locked on Evil Sway being the single. Again, like with lyrics, obviously, Evil Sway, there's a little bit of a nod to the Stones, you know. And then uh, the other thing I always think about is, you know, he says, um, all I see is Sexual Red, which like, every time I hear Sexual Red, I think of Gun Club, because that's a a line Jeffrey Lee Pierce has. You know, our band is sort of this sweet spot where obviously we, we really love these like giant kind of populist anthems. You know, we love all those classic rock influences. As much as we love Gun Club and Dream Syndicate, we also, you know, love bruce springsteen and tom petty brian definitely was like nodding to all these different influences like throughout the record you know just little moments here and there this kind of little easter eggs
1: i mean i think the appeal of celebration rock is that these two guys had clearly studied rock history and they were making an album uh in the mold of you know a, of a born to run or a marquee moon or led's up IV. four it had the feeling of like a classic rock record but like they were not a classic rock band you know they they're coming at it from a distance in a way you know they don't look like a typical rock band you know it's a guitar player and a drummer they were clearly drawing from the continuum of rock music but they were doing it in a way that really no other band had done you know and it was almost like deconstructing what classic rock was and putting it together in like a slightly sort of eccentric shape that still delivered the goods you know in a way that you would want from a record like that
2: brian and i especially you know in the kind of decade leading up to celebration rock we were listening to a lot of the same music together mainly because we hang we would be hanging out all the time so brian especially is just like just devours music constantly and is just like ingesting it all and then and then sharing stuff with me. So he has like a pretty encyclopedic knowledge of, of like rock and roll. Oh, yeah. to the drummer so you know one of the things I think about most with Evil Sway was that there is a drum solo that was Brian's idea you know I came to drumming pretty late and uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking that I had the skill set to provide a drum solo for a song nor did we ever seem to be like the kind of band that would have a drum solo but um, uh, it was pretty fun to do and it's definitely a fun thing to do live
1: It almost feels like like a '50s record at times on the first side. It, it really feels like Japan Droids kind of leaning into rock history in sort of like uh, like an old time rock and roll direction. And I think that's worth emphasizing. You know, I think that translates in like the sound of the songs, but you know, also in the imagery. I mean, it just reminds me a lot of like a lot of the sort of like more you know doom and gloom type early rock songs. It has like a slightly kind of gothic feel to me a little bit like on that side of the record, which I think is like pretty cool.
2: We've done a whole slew of singles between Post Nothing and Celebration Rock. And with each one of those singles, we do a B-side cover. And I think usually in the way we chose those B-sides, we'd often be exploring darker material than we would sort of let ourselves write, you know, on our own. Um, And I think it helped us broaden our horizons. So, you know, there's uh, a big black cover that we did. We did a cover of Jack the Ripper by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. We covered PJ Harvey, we covered X. And so that Gun Club cover was originally, you know, planned as one of those b-sides
3: we kind of had not had a great weekend like i think we had a weekend where the original song they'd written hadn't gone down quite as well as they'd hoped um i think brian was starting to doubt the quality of the song which again i think got rewritten and re-recorded and included on celebration and rock in the end but but meanwhile we kind of got to the end of the weekend and we were like fuck you know we kind of didn't Meet our goals this weekend, or we weren't really happy with what we'd done. And I think we were probably drinking at the time, or I mean, I don't think I was, but I. you they were um i I normally don't drink much at work but uh i I think it was kind of like we were feeling bummed and we're like let's let's just do something fun let's do something exciting so um i had the idea of being like let's just create a crazy vocal sound it's not an easy song to to sing either because you know you have to do your best jeffrey lee pierce and he's a pretty fucking crazy guy and whatever so i think what i did is i hooked up the vocals and i ran them through some different like distorted like tube mic priests and i ran them through the space echo and i literally like came up with a vocal sound that was totally mixed and i think i think brian had had a few at that moment in time and was probably getting tired already and it was like just like go in there and fucking bang something out just like go in there and rip a song off let's not punch in let's not get granular let's not get in our heads about it let's just like go in have some fun and crank it out
2: i remember distinctly jesse just handing brian a bottle of jack daniels and like a 58 just like a cordless 58 and turning the lights out in the main the main tracking room and just being like take a few pulls off the jack daniels and just let it rip and that's that's how we got the vocal for that i would definitely not recommend that as the way to get all your vocals for a record, but it did definitely work for that one.
3: And he did that vocal for For the Love of Ivy, which is which I think he did a great job on, and it's totally exciting. And um, and then it was like, okay, we're done. You know, this weekend was, was a bit shit, but we got one rad thing out of it.
2: You know, I think one of Jesse's big strong suits for us um, is that he's quite a talented singer and he's a really great coach for vocals. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that I really notice, especially listening back to Celebration Rock, is just remembering, like, Brian was not a confident singer at that time. You know, he's gotten a lot more confident as a lyricist and a singer as as, as the band's gone on. But, you know, when we first started, vocals was not a, a source of confidence, and Jesse really knew how to bring the best out of Brian vocally. And uh, some of the performances he got out of Brian on, on Celebration Rock are pretty incredible.
4: I'm a man, I wanna go, go, go yeah.
2: That was a really fun cover to record. And it also became like a live set staple for us after that. So obviously our band really loves dynamics. Like we like, you know, being super loud and then trying to stop for a minute or bring things down for a second, then explode again. And, and the Gun Club are so good at that.
1: You know, to cover a Gun Club song in 2012, that just was not something that I think a lot of indie groups were interested in. in in 2012 it was just like a reference that uh like like a lot of things on this record it was sort of like a passe thing you know to sound like that and again I think it just speaks to how isolated this band was uh how they were not part of any kind of scene and it didn't seem like they wanted to fit in when you think about like indie rock as it was in, in 2012, it was an interesting year because there was a transition going on, I think, from what was going on in the late aughts, which was a very arty type of indie rock that was coming out of Brooklyn, you know, exemplified by groups like Animal Collective and Grizzly Bear and and, and Dirty Projectors, who were drawing from like folk music, but also like a lot of like pop and R&B and dance music, really like not much of a rock thing going on at all so when you listen to this record in that context and you remember like what else is going on i think it stands out even more honestly
2: that song sticks out like a sore thumb on the record to me uh and and to brian too um i think that is one weird thing about the record that actually irks us not not that we you know we love that song and we love the gun club but uh i think if we could uh do it all over again, we'd probably try and stick one more original that felt like it fit with the rest of the record a little better. There was a lot of ways to sort of talk ourselves into including it on the album, especially when you had seven songs and you really wanted to have an eight song album. But it's a weird one to, to listen back to because it kind of feels like, like it's sort of belongs in a different world
3: yeah obviously like putting a cover on on a record I, I i get why the band regrets that and and like i said there was you know this was like a, a situation where like we have to go back on tour like in a week from now like we have to we have to wrap this up we need a song and it's a good thing that it was pretty rad because it ended up being needed to make an eight song record <laughs> otherwise we would have had a seven song record so what's
1: well, interesting to me because i feel like the record is somewhat backloaded You know, the first side in a way feels like the opening act, and the second side is like the headliner.
2: So Adrenaline Night Shift is one of my favorite songs that we've ever done. And it was often a set opener uh, on the whole Celebration Rock tour. It's got a bit of a like Born to Run kind of vibe or something where you're really like coming in all guns blazing. And uh, it felt like a great way to start either side A or side B of the record. And uh, I think when we were messing around with track listings, that was one of the things to me that kind of kept bouncing around was, you know, there was a moment of, of thinking, Adrenaline Night Shift should maybe start the record. But if it didn't start the record, it should at least start side B. Yeah, again, it's another autobiographical kind of song and uh, it has a real replacements vibe to me, you know? Like it's a pretty messy, drunken anthem, you know? Like there's a real hook to it, but it's also like kind of sloppy and kind of falling apart at the edges. And I just, I feel like that's a pretty sweet spot for us to hit. And uh, about halfway through making this record, we started recording some songs to a click track. And part of that came from a debate we had uh, about Adrenaline Night Shift where we, you know, done a bunch of takes and got this take that we were like, oh, this is this is sweet. This this sounds great. We you know, played it really well. We we're like, oh, this is feeling really good, blah, blah, blah. You know, we'd record together, obviously guitars and drums at the same time. And then Brian would sing and I would sing uh, on top of the instrumental track. As soon as Brian tried to sing over it, he's like, whoa, this is way too fast. We've recorded this way too fast. And uh, Jesse and I were like, no, oh, man, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's got this whole Born to Run kind of energy, it's great, man, this is perfect. And Brian's like, this is not Born to Run, this is so fast. And I remember we we like listened to Adrenaline and then we listened to Born to Run and we realized, oh yeah, this is like twice as fast as Born to Run. There's nothing Born to Run about this at all. When I listen to this record, I hear a band that
1: is trying to sit next to their heroes. Like, it is really just, you know, them making their version of Born to Run as if that's the most natural thing to do in 2012, as if that's something that everybody would be doing, which of course it's not, you know. But their spirit of that and like their directness with that, I think, is what really sells the record, you know, to people who love it. I would just go back again to really kind of re-plugging into a version of yourself that doesn't exist anymore. And sometimes the only way to like revisit that is through a record. And I think the song younger us, like specifically it's about pining for that, like literally in the lyrics. But I, again, I think what makes that song come across is like the sound of it. You know, it sounds like a rush of, nostalgia or sentimentality however you want to want to describe it like but the way that that song feels i think is matters more even than like what's in the lyrics and i think that's true of japan droid songs in general that they have a way of plugging into something you know like where you hear it and you remember the times in your life when that was your life you know, when you were young and you were staying up all night for the first time and you were with your friends and it was something that felt really exhilarating and and innocent. And uh, those kind of memories, they're easy to scoff at when you get older and you're more cynical and, and you feel like you've matured or that you're smarter than you used to be. But I think the great thing about Japan droids is that it really is about the most innocent and maybe the dumbest part of your life. And there's no distance from it at all.
2: So Younger Us was actually, yeah, it was a non-album single. Uh, It came out in spring of 2010. And um, that song came together very quickly. Uh, Brian had been writing it while we were on tour, but I didn't really even hear it until a day or two before we cut it. Um, Brian and I jammed it for like, you know, three days or something.
3: That was my favorite Japan Write song when they brought it to me. At the time, I'm almost certain that was the first song post-Post Nothing that I recorded. And I remember thinking, that's the best song you ever wrote. Like, that's way better to me than anything on Post Nothing. And, and that's not the slight Post Nothing. I, I like songs on that record, too. But Younger Us, to me, is a song... I think very few songs I've ever recorded kind of embody the spirit of how it feels to kind of be young and be out at night and kind of, you know, having personal freedom and, and, and falling in love and like everything that could possibly be good about being young, um, that song is so much about. I, I I love it.
2: Yeah, I think it inadvertently really showed us a way of growing and and seemed to be kind of a pretty natural like next step forward where we're sort of still writing like big anthemic songs. But, you know, I think we were a bit more confident as musicians. I think Brian was becoming a more confident vocalist. I think we were really kind of crystallizing some of those things that kind of were our strong suits, you know, like those big uh, vocals, you know, gnarly guitar sound, but also like very, very melodic guitar playing. Uh, And then those dynamics of sort of, you know, coming in with a little bit of a quieter verse and then exploding into the next part. And, you know, Brian singing that kind of lower octave and then going for that high octave after that. 26, writing a song called Younger Us which now that I'm like almost 40 seems ridiculous <laughs> but yeah you know but I think it's uh, you know it's funny right I mean I, I think that's a funny thing about being younger I think is that you can also sometimes like have this idea that you're so world weary without really realizing how silly that might sound to an outsider you know and I think a lot of people can relate to that too it's just that feeling of Feeling a lot older than your years sometimes. You know, an underrated
1: aspect of this album is the romance of it. I think there's a certain softness and, and vulnerability to it. And I don't think that, like, you know, looking back on your childhood or, you know, is exclusive to any one demographic. I mean, I think anyone has a certain sentimentality about their past. I think people tend to classify it as like a dude's rock. Type album, and uh, you know, there's certainly elements of, of that on the record. But you know, I always feel like that's kind of like a reductive way to dismiss something. You know, that it's just like a bunch of dudes drinking beer and playing loud guitars, and you know, isn't that isn't that special that that's happening? I know quite a few women who like this record because I don't really think of it as like like a macho record.
2: We've managed to find that line where it's sort of music for a wild bros night out, but it's also not in a sort of super toxic way. It's actually just like music for nice dudes to have nice times. Uh, (laughs) I remember somebody telling me they've never seen so many guys like hugging each other as at a Japan droid show, you know, like it's, it's a, there's a sort of warmth, I think, to a lot of the writing, you know, there's an element of like having a wild night out, but there's, there's also kind of a, you know, a, a pretty strong like heart, behind it
1: a song like you know house that heaven built what strikes me about that song is the softness of it you know the softness at the core of that song you know that it's, it's expressing something you know so heartfelt you know it really is a song that describes the kind of love that you feel when you're 21 <laughs>
2: I think it's pretty clear at this point that if there's one song that anybody uh is ever gonna know japan droids for it's gonna be house That heaven built um brian and i talked a lot about how after post nothing brian you know felt a lot of pressure where he was like man i don't know if i'm ever gonna write another song that's you know that people connect with as, as much as young heart spark fire like i think that might just be the one if we make 10 more albums that'll be the song everybody wants to hear um House in Heavenville obviously has definitely eclipsed that in terms of, you know, just how far it's traveled and how many people have heard it. Um, That was one of the ones that came from the trip to Nashville. They rented a house for a month
3: and just jammed. Like just they just needed to get away. Like no friends, no hanging out. Like we just have to like write the last four songs of this record because if we don't do it when we're away, we're not gonna have the time to do it. And uh, and that's when they wrote. Uh, well, in particular, uh, the house that heaven built was written down there.
2: You know, we kind of hit a point where things weren't really feeling like they were happening in Vancouver. So a change of scenery just felt like a really good way to just force ourselves to write and uh, focus. Um, so we ended up writing "Continuous Thunder" and uh, the house I haven't built in Nashville, and we have some very, somewhere I'm sure I uh, have some very funny phone recordings of like original demos of that from that house in Nashville.
3: And I, I got to hear the demos from it. They sent me an email with, you know, whatever a phone recording or something. Yeah, and I heard that song and was like, oh, ah, you've written the hit. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> the song's great. So yeah, yeah. So I, I was felt pretty confident about that one at the time.
2: We didn't think about key back then. So we'd write a song instrumentally just based on where it sounded best on a guitar. So occasionally that creates some problems because all of a sudden he realizes, like, oh shit, I can't actually sing these notes where they're supposed to be. And you know, we just got like so profoundly lucky with the house I haven't built where it's just right at the tippy top of his range, and he can just barely hit it.
3: That was like one of the last overdubs we did. Uh, we tried like you know slowing it down to do it. We tried like lowering the pitch. Like it's right on the cusp of it. And uh, we tried recording on so many different ways just to get it to feel as a bright and anthemic and exciting as possible. It's actually like an old. Uh, it's a Daniel Lanois trick that uh, he's the Canadian producer who produced uh, like U U2, two, U uh, two's biggest records. Like I'm pretty sure he did the Joshua Tree, and uh, that was uh, like one of the tricks was like adjust the song's pitch to be as high as it could possibly be but not too high so that way Bono is always soaring you know and uh, although like you know I don't know if Japanroids are quite as soaring as U2 gets um <laughs> you know they're soaring in a fast more <laughs> bombastic way.
2: There's a certain emotional factor that you can only get I think when you're when it sounds like he's actually like struggling to hit those notes you know there's something about that that really brings out this like desperation and and like it it really helps that feeling of like urgency really come out you know so to some extent that was like sheer dumb luck and that's just where we the song was written but i think there was also this element of like no like you can hit those notes it's going to be a struggle but like you can hit those notes and when you do it's going to be really special you know uh made it a bitch to play on live though for sure because uh you know It's hard for him to hit those notes night after night. obviously a calling card for our band is is the big backup um, vocals and all the gang vocals so for almost every song but I, I think this one was one that we really wanted to dial in and make sure that we really nailed it um because we could really tell like this is going to be something people are going to want to sing along to i think you know i think this and then obviously that bridge in nights of wine and roses are sort of two big moments where you really want the crowd to know they're supposed to sing there once we started touring on post nothing, we really noticed those moments where people wanted to sing along. And so I think there was definitely a bit more of a conscious effort for this record of being like, okay, let's like figure out a way to like, get the crowd to sing along to this part. How do we get the crowd to sing along to this part? And there was definitely a lot more of those like very clear kind of cues that we did. One of the like real like producer moments for Jesse uh, is on that song. So, you know, when he sings, uh, you're not mine to die for anymore, so I must live you know that's when the vocal of the
4: oh, 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 oh,
2: should come back in and Jesse was like no dude we don't have it there we just let you know just let that space be there it gives a chance for the the you know the crowd to sing it whenever we you guys play it live and I really like that sense of space there I think it's really cool and it just like makes the song explode that last time
4: It's a lifeless life with no. The dress to give, but you're not mine to die for anymore, so I must live.
2: The crowd is sort of this really important part of our show, you know, like they're, it's very participatory, right? Like we're not looking to do a thing where like everybody in the crowd is supposed to like sit down and, and watch us perform a show for them. Um, it's very much like a, a communal thing that we're all a part of, you know, and we really wanted to like integrate that and kind of like bring that into this next record to really kind of keep building on that. So yeah, having all those big gang vocals was a huge part of, of creating that sort of an atmosphere.
1: One of the really fun things about Celebration Rock is that it does feel like hanging out with your friends. There's so many bands, you know, so many great bands where you feel like the band members don't hang out, you know, like when they're not playing together. But with Japan droids, you do feel like, oh, that these two are like best friends and they're having a great time and they're inviting you as the listener to you know be the third wheel they're like hey man hang out with us we're gonna have a great time and you know yeah you might be alone right now listening to this but if you put this record on you're not going to be alone we're going to be with you for the next 40 minutes and it's going to be a great time and like all of the great rock records it is like a companion you know you feel like I'm hanging out with these guys and they understand me in a way that maybe other people don't. And I can act a certain way when I'm listening to this that maybe I can't act when I'm with other people. You know, and that's I think one of the magical things about Celebration Rock.
2: certainly didn't have any insight nor did brian that this song was going to be this sort of life changing song for us you're just making every song as good as it can be and you're just hoping you know you're hoping people like it but most of all you're just hoping you like it and you know with that song we just made a song that we were really proud of but we didn't have any any idea of how much it was going to change our lives
3: it got bigger and bigger and bigger after that moment in time and and uh you know nothing is bigger nothing is more popular in in vancouver than hockey you know it's canada like canadians love hockey and the vancouver canucks you know you don't even have to be into hockey you still watch you know the canucks you watch the playoffs and yeah like they they would skate out onto the rink to a house that had been built in Vancouver. And it was getting played at the stadium every single week as the, as the local hockey team skated onto the ice. And I know Brian was quite proud because he um, bought tickets to the hockey game and he brought his mom, uh, who's a Vancouverite, and he brought her to the game and she got to hear his song while the team skated on the ice. She's also a big sports fan, from my understanding as well. So I think it quite, was quite a look, mom, I made it moment uh, when, uh, when the local hockey team is skating to your song onto the ice. I think that was a pretty big deal.
2: It's wild, you know, to see everybody uh, singing along to your music. And, um, and that's the one that just gets, obviously, the wildest response from a crowd. And uh, that never gets old. I'm never going to get tired of that, ever.
3: I was excited when I heard this song because you can be the you could try to be the fastest band and and bands have done that and you can try to be um, you know the poppiest hookiest kind of band or or whatever but you know if you can't do a slow one you know what I mean like everybody likes a slow one
1: yeah I think in the same way that like Knights of Wine and Roses is just a total like prototypical first track I think Continuous Thunder is a prototypical closer you know it is. A little more subdued in terms of it's not as upbeat as a lot of the songs on the record it, it is more introspective it's slower i guess you could describe it as a ballad but it really does feel like a summation type song you know uh, you know like this is what's playing over the closing credits as like the couple kisses under like you know a thunderstorm Through
4: the cold. Piss rain Dressed to the nines Arm in arm with me tonight Sing out loud Yeah, 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 yeah Like continuous thunder
2: Started falling into a bit of a pattern of like seven fast songs, one slow song at the end. Uh, so, continuous thunder kind of takes in some of that same space that I quit girls had on post nothing, to some extent, in the sense that it's you know it is slower and it's a little bit more subdued than everything else. So yeah, writing that song, I was like,
3: oh man, like I just think it really shows a lot of skill as a songwriter, as a singer, as a drummer as well. Like uh, I've talked a lot about Brian, I haven't talked as much about Dave. Like to play a slow spacious pocketed drum song amongst a song like younger us that's going at 250 bpm or whatever it is it it shows your diversity as a band and, and to me it also shows the longevity of the band
2: i was very proud of that song when we finished it you know not just as a drummer but i think i was also just proud of our band cuz it felt like we were really exploring some new territory with that whereas you know a lot of these songs on celebration rock felt like kind of Almost like writing like a better version of Young Heart Spark Fire or Wet Hair or something like that. Like it was kind of in our wheelhouse, but trying to execute that idea better. Uh Continuous Thunder felt a bit more like an exploration of something a little different.
4: Heart's to rain. It's never-
2: Yeah, again, we were yeah exploring a pretty different way of being a band for that song. And, uh, you know, and a huge part of that, obviously, is, is the way Brian sings. So, you know, whereas every other song, Brian's kind of just yelling at the top of his lungs. And, and that's sort of where that emotional resonance comes from. You know, this one was much, much more intimate, you know, so yeah, so there's a different choice of uh, microphone, There was definitely a different kind of balance in his headphones, he wasn't He wasn't playing the mute, his playback at the top volume so that he had to yell to get over it. It was quieter. Everything about it was just approached with a lot more subtlety. Um, And our band is not known for subtlety, so it was definitely a different approach. This was actually recorded
3: similar to For the Love of Ivy, where I came up with a vocal sound first. I didn't make Brian record it all, you know, clean and, and vulnerable and kind of like dry and exposed. I made him comfortable first. I came up with that kind of saturated um, blown out sound that he often would use on all those earlier records. Like we'd sometimes use a sounds amp like for his vocals and stuff like that. That's sort of like a guitar amp simulator. So that way Brian wouldn't feel like himself singing it he'd feel like he was in the character of the song. And that's a trick I've found over the years. Like if I give him a good headphone mix where he feels cool, then he sings really cool too.
2: And I don't really remember it being that much of a struggle, honestly, to get that vocal performance. I think Brian had a pretty clear idea of what he wanted to do. Um, I think there is, you know, a fair amount of effects on the vocal, just so it doesn't feel too, too exposed and, and finding the right blend where it you know sits in the mix so it's not kind of overly vulnerable was was a thing but i think as far as how to sing to that song i think it was pretty clear that that was the way to sing oh, had
4: all of the answers and you had the body you want.
1: It doesn't have the grandiosity of a song like Jungle Land, but it, it has a similar sort of feeling of being an elegy. You know, like, okay, you know, we've gone on this journey together, and we were these young kids at the beginning of the record, and now we're at the end, and we've changed a little bit. Maybe we've grown up over the course of this journey. And with Continuous Thunder, it's almost like, okay, the heroes are walking off into the sunset, but they're not going to be the same people maybe that they were at the beginning of the record.
2: I think the real moment when I I realized certainly that things were totally changing was we went in May and we did a UK tour right before the album was about to drop. And and it was really fun. And, you know, but it was kind of like playing a lot of the same type of venues we've been playing on post nothing, you know, you know, small clubs, really great crowds, blah, blah, blah. And then we went right from that to a big North American tour, and I think the first show of that North American tour was um, was in Seattle at Numos, And it was sold the fuck out. Like, so sold out. Like, so many people. And basically every show on that tour was like that. It was just, like, fucking rammed with people. And people already knew, you know, like, all the new songs, even though the album had, like, just dropped. And that's when it was like, okay, this is something totally different is about to happen here. It's not really until you... Are playing in front of people that you really see kind of how much of a hold the album already has on people and it was definitely like that first tour of North America was just like oh wow this is this is a big deal (laughs) people are really excited and this is going to change our lives
3: I think when you capture kind of a band at a time when they're playing live an incredible amount there's touring like like they toured for two and a half years straight they toured they didn't like 4000 shows or something like that they played in 70 countries there's something obscene like that like to capture that energy like you can sit around in your house and and write great songs and people do and 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 you have to do that as at a certain time as a songwriter but those songs were written on tour in a completely whirlwind time in their lives and there's a bit of kind of like you know divine intervention that kind of um, creates this, um, creates this energy of that time and this momentum that they um, were able to capture. And I was lucky enough to get to record.
2: Celebration Rock, I think we had a pretty clear idea of how we could improve on what we did with Post Nothing. And then I think after Celebration Rock, you know, that path became a little less clear to us. You know, I think obviously there's there's only the two of us in the band so your options uh, as far as like where you can go musically are are more limited um and so yeah I think it's no surprise that it took quite a long time to make the next record partly because we toured our asses off and we were gone for like two years um touring on Celebration Rock and then we're exhausted after that but I think also you know, the, the shadow of Celebration Rock looms pretty large over our band, you know, for, you know, mostly for good. But um the flip side of that is, yeah, like, there's definitely moments where, you know, on, on Near the Wild Heart of Life for us where we were, we would be working on a song and we'd be like, maybe this sounds a little too much like Japan Droids. <laughs> you know, and that wasn't something that ever occurred to us on Celebration Rock, but it is a funny thing where it's you... And it's not necessarily just about Celebration Rock itself, but as your band progresses and as you keep going, like, I think there's, there's a certain need to feel like you're challenging yourself and exploring new territory. So it's an interesting thing, right? Where there's probably a whole bunch of people that would just wanted a Celebration Rock part two and then Celebration Rock part three, part four, and so on and so forth. But that wasn't necessarily something we were interested in doing.
1: You know, the problem with Japan droids is that when you make a record that, recreates the feeling of falling in love for the first time you know you can only fall in love for the first time once you know so if that's what people want from you you know, how do you do that on your, on your next record you know it, I think that's really hard to do I think it remains to be seen with Japan Droids just because they haven't put out a whole lot of music since Celebration Rock you know like I would be hard pressed to say they're never going to make a record as good as that because they've only made one record since then. I do know that, like, if they don't make another record at all, or they don't make a record as good as Celebration Rock, that I don't think it really matters, you know? Celebration Rock, to me, is like one of those albums that, like, you can't replicate. They made this record, and you can't take that away from them, and you, and maybe
3: that's enough. You're not gonna write Celebration Rock twice, and not like we're even trying to, or that Japaners are trying to do that necessarily, but we always think about Celebration Rock, we always think about you know what makes that record great? We always consider it. We listen to it sometimes, like in the studio, we think about it. But uh, at least I do. But that song is, is shows that it's not a one trick pony band. Like their Chipmendris do slower, weirder, moodier shit, and and they've written a lot of stuff since then where they've done that. And I think that that Continuous Thunder makes that kind of okay, you know, like it's not really out of their wheelhouse and for sure like Near the Wild Heart of Life goes farther away from that at times and also set them up for the fact that Japan Roots have been a band for 10 more years since Celebration Rock and are still touring and, are, and have written tons of new songs, which are not out yet, but will exist one day. And um, yeah, they're still a relevant band. So that, that song to me is, is the gateway to the rest of their career. <laughs>
2: I think the like, overwhelming feeling I have, when I look back on this record, is, is just gratitude. Um, you know, I can still remember being the dude who was just playing drums in a local Vancouver band and wondering if I was ever going to you know get to go on a proper tour and if anybody outside of Vancouver was ever going to really hear our songs. I have a lot of friends who are amazingly talented. Uh, musicians and who have made fantastic albums and you know their work hasn't been recognized in in the same way on the same level and as much as I think we're a good band and like our songs very much and think we put on a good show I'm also acutely aware of how much luck and timing is a factor in success you know and um, Overall, I'm just I just feel so lucky, you know, that I got to make a record that I'm really proud of that means so much to people. It's a pretty amazing thing to be part of.
0: Visit lifeoftherecord.com for more information about Japanroids. You'll also find a link to stream or purchase Celebration Rock. Thanks for listening.